Hello, welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Damien. And I'm Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work for social justice. Each week, we'll bring something new to the table, discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we think we can go for more just society. We want Interdependent Study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. And Aaron, my friend, you're up this week. Yep. Um, we're sitting at the table, I think, at the earliest we've ever recorded an episode. <laughs> it is before yeah. breakfast time. So, you know, what, thanks for coming along this ride yeah. with us, folks. Um, what have you brought to the table today? Uh, I'm bringing an article called Building Resilient Organizations by Maurice Mitchell. Uh, he is the national director of the Working Families Party, uh, which he sees and describes as what he hopes to be the political home for a multiracial working class movement. Yes. And this article is brilliant. Oh, yeah. Uh, he starts off naming some of uh, the context of the difficulties in movement organizations, uh, which reflect difficulties more broadly. Uh, he names the roots of these crises, like what specifically uh, has created those things. Um and then names some of the tendencies that he has seen in organizations and then some ways that he thinks we can move to solutions uh, where he identifies dimensions of resilient organizations. And those dimensions are structural, ideological, strategic, and emotional. And then there's a whole bunch of like action items yes. basically you can take to try to have your organization be resilient in this kind of framework. Yeah. Um, and just throughout the piece, there are these moments where he names dynamics that I've seen both in my work in interpersonal stuff um, and in some organizing spaces I've been in. And it's such a well-crafted analysis of where we are collectively and then where we could go if we make some tweaks. Um, And it's grounded in this belief that these things can shift and that folks in these organizations already have the know-how to do these things. Absolutely. They just need a little push or they need a little focused work um, or thinking through like what that process could be for them. But what about you? What stuck out? Yeah, I like that at the end there. You know, it's it really is. There's some uh, hopefulness about it, right? Like he believes that this that um, these things that are identifiable um, issues um, in organizations, right, in ways in which organizations aren't as resilient as they could be, right. There's room for improvement, right, and there's ways yeah. and and there's steps you can take to to get there. So um, I I like that. Yeah, I think this was a great article. And I think really a resource, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think the best way to describe it would be as a resource. uh, Yeah, people could definitely come back to this. Oh, absolutely. Right. I think he did such a great job in laying out just a lot of, as you said, helpful information and ideas. And, and I like that you use the word action, like actionable steps that Mm -hmm. um, individuals and activists and movements and, and organizations can can use to improve themselves as individuals, but also their work, right? And the work they do collectively and collaboratively, um, you know, in with the end goal of ultimately becoming more resilient. Um, and I, and I, I think he did a great job, especially at the end of the piece and sharing why that's so important. Right. And so that's yeah. one of the things I highlighted, like why it's important that we as individuals and we as organizations build our capacities and our, resiliency. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I definitely think I'm going to hit on this a little bit later. But, you know, one of the things he said at the very end of this piece, sort of the soundbite answer to this idea of why it's important. uh, He did it in his last two sentences of of the piece, which are on the other side of uncomfortable of the uncomfortable journey is an abundant, playful and powerful home for our freedom dreams. 
will we choose it? Yeah. Right? And I'm like, that's so good. It's such a great question, such a great way to have closed out this um, this resource. Um, mm. And so this was a really incredible read and I'm, I'm glad you found it. I'm glad we get to sort of amplify it here on the podcast. Yeah, me too. Um, thanks to the folks who have shared it around online in yeah. the different, different uh, places I might follow folks. Um, yeah. So I want to share that I was hooked by this article in the first few hundred words, like the introductory part. Yes. Cause he succinctly cuts right to the point of the whole article mm-hmm. um, and sets us up to understand what it is he's responding to. It's almost like he knows how to write. Yes. Which is fantastic. <laughs> um, Get to the but point. It, yeah. Um, so he says, quote, movements on the left are driven by the same political and social contradictions we strive to overcome. We fight against racism, classism, and sexism yet battle inequity and oppression inside our movements. Although we struggle for freedom and democracy, we also suffer from tendencies toward abuse and domination. We promote leadership encouraged by individuals, but media exposure, social media fame, and access to resources compromise activists. We draw from the courage of radical traditions, but often lack the strategy or conviction to challenge the status quo. The radical demands that we do make are so regularly disregarded that it can feel as if we're shouting into the wind. Many of us are working harder than ever, but feeling that we have less power and impact. And then he dives right into the roots of what created that context, which includes stuff like crisis of institutional legitimacy after 40 years of neoliberalism, expansion of corporate and billionaire power, lack of a management philosophy in different organizations. And there's a lot more um, of these current conditions and the, the sort of things that created um, the context for where we are. Um, and I, I think we could, we could spend a whole lot of time talking about these and how they developed um, and, and what our experiences with them look like. Absolutely. Um, but just to, to sort of touch on those and give some context for like the rest of the piece, I wanted to add those things in um, because it's so it paints such a clear picture of where we are and why it is that we got to this place. That we got to this place. Absolutely. Yeah. That, um, I agree with you. I was hooked right away only because I feel like, you know, he wanted this to me, he wanted this to be a resource. Right. And so there's no need to sort of dilly dally around. Right. He got to the point right out the gate talking about what the point of this resource was, how it, identifying the problem and the issues that he sees um, from his experience, right? And sort of like, let's get into it, right? Let's figure yeah. this out, right? And that quote is is wild, right? To me, it speaks to sort of the both and of, of what organizations experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right, you have sort of the issues that you're trying to tackle, right? And the society in which we live and the oppressions that we face, right? But some of that stuff is is lives and festers within organizations right because people are flawed well and we've been socialized in the in the context of the the society that we're trying to change right so there's this like both and of we understand what it is we're fighting against and we also grew up and were conditioned in that thing so we bring that with us yes so good so so good so i i appreciate that i i really appreciated so much about this piece um you know you started to allude to this i think right i i I enjoyed how he named some of the common trends um he has seen in movements and and in social justice organizations um that you know stem from or influenced by as we just talked about like the larger conditions in our society um, and that are often, right, the various reasons why folks are engaged in the work that they're engaged in, right? And so he named 
these common trends. And he also talked about, and I think this was the most important part, right? He talked about how they show up and where the fallacies are with them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to name the trends. The trends were neoliberal identity, maximalism, anti-leadership attitudes, anti-institutional sentiment, cherry-picking arguments, glass houses, small wars, unanchored care, disproportionality, and activist culture, mm-hmm. right? Um and there's, <laughs> I mean, I would love to talk about all of these, right? Yep. Because there's so much wisdom that he sort of spells out about all of these. Um, but two that I'm going to highlight um, that kind of stood out to me as rather fascinating were maximalism and glass houses. And so with maximalism, I think I was really compelled by the idea that it's so important to not forget the basic work required of organizing, right? Mm. Like that you have to not only be engaged with your comrades, right? But you mm-hmm. you also have to engage with people where they are, right? You have to mm-hmm. work to build relationships with them and understand them and then move them to action with you, right? Um, while at the same time, never losing sight of your strategy, right? And staying yeah. grounded in your strategy. So this idea is a reminder, I think, that often this work is about coalition building, right? And bringing folks along with you. And I think there's so much applicability to that idea beyond organizing work. Um, but as a, as someone who believes in the humanity of people, someone who likes to connect with people like that to me is so important, um, to, to keep in mind as you think about building resiliency in your organization. Um, the other one that stood out to me, uh, was glass houses. Um, and it was really about letting go of this idea of prioritizing perfection, and I love that we just went to a great session about this, right? Mm-hmm. And we've talked about it before, right? Like perfectionism being like a characteristic of white supremacy. Um, and so Maurice, I think, really reminded us that it's so important to utilize that both-and thinking in the work that we do, to be committed to the ongoing work at both the organizational level and with the larger change that needs to happen or or is being sought out, if you will, right? And so, like... I don't know. I thought those two to me, for whatever reason, stood out, but all of them were so brilliant. All of them had great context and and um, and wisdom to help organizations really think about, you know, who they are, what they're trying to do, improve themselves, um, mm-hmm. analyze the work that they're doing. Um, so I, yeah, I appreciated that so much. Yeah, I highlighted almost all of those. Um, <laughs> yes. I guess I started to and then I was like, well, this is kind of productive to highlight everything. Yep. Um, but one of the things I wanted to to uh, shout out out of those trends was the concept of neoliberal identity. Yes, okay. Uh, and he says, quote, what's implied is that one's identity is a comprehensive validator of one's political strategy. That identity is evidence of some intrinsic ideological or strategic legitimacy. Marginalized identity is deployed as a conveyor of a strategic truth that must simply be accepted. Likewise, historically privileged identities are essentialized, flattened, and frequently for better or worse, dismissed. And this is like identity politics, but without the politics. um, (laughs) It's a way to focus on the individual instead of the broader coalition or a greater need or understanding how you're connected to your strategy. Yes. Uh, And the article quotes Barbara Smith, Mm -hmm. who says, it's like they've taken the identity and left the politics on the floor. Um, And to put a bow on this concept, on this um, thought... Maurice says, we infantilize members of historically marginalized or oppressed groups by seeking to placate or pander instead of being in right relationship 
which requires struggle, debate, disagreement, and hard work. This type of false solidarity is a form of charity that weakens the individual and the collective, which is so sharp. So sharp. <laughs> it gets right to the point of the ways that sometimes um, we navigate these politics that are present in our identities yep. by deferring um, even when we don't necessarily agree. Right. Um, and particularly the way that I've seen that happen with men um, mm -hmm. or the way that I've seen that happen with white folks where we're like, well, I don't like, I don't necessarily see that being in alignment or the way that some people will avoid sort of valid critique um, of somebody in a way that would be, you know, helpful and constructive for yes. whatever it is you're working on. Yes. But because we've essentialized, like we focused on that, just the identity of the two of us and we're not necessarily grounded in our politics and our mm -hmm. strategy, we're letting go of the strategy in favor of that sort of that individualized, like interpersonal piece of it, um, which then, as it says, weakens the individual and the collective because we're not engaging in those conversations. Absolutely. It's wild to think about, you know, as you talk about um, this trend, neoliberal identity and the ones I mentioned, right? Like one of the things that stood out to me um, and it, it just really got highlighted by all that you just shared there is how connected these things are mm -hmm. right like they're all connected right yeah. and so you know in the example that you shared there right like you i think you have to prioritize this idea of coalition building and relationship building mm -hmm. right you have to get to know the people that you're working with so that you can have as it was quoted here right struggle debate disagreement hard work right like that work is important those that that effort is important and it is okay yeah. to do and it is productive in the sense of the work that you're trying to do right mm -hmm. um and so you can't have one without the other right you can't have or you can't have a healthy one without the healthy other you know right. yep. um so i just loved how all of these are so connected um in a way uh, yeah i i highlighted a lot too mm -hmm. um <laughs> continuing my highlighting train you know um so he ends the common trends and sort of transitions into as you mentioned these actionable steps to yeah. solve these common trends or issues or to, or to work towards solutions and and ways to build resiliency within your organization. And, and I think that, again, speaks to why this is a resource and such a helpful resource yeah. um, and a tool to use. So um, as you said, he named these dimensions of resilient organizations, structural, ideological, strategic, and emotional. Um, and I think there's so much to learn from each of these. Um, and again, you know, helpful and actionable steps to take. Um, so I would encourage anyone who's listening and engaged in really any kind of work to, to dig into these because they're so great. Um, the structural one stood out to me, so I'll just highlight that. Um, there were action steps in that that um, spoke to me on a lot of levels, sort of hit a lot of my core values, thinking about things like how decisions are made. Right. Who was involved in decision making, how decisions are communicated on a broad scale, um, how decisions should be made by leaders who are diverse in every sense possible and are representative representative um, of the organization and the needs we're trying to address. Right. Right. Like I just think there's so much good stuff in that idea, um, that dimension. Um and, and worthy of any organization taking its time to sort of work through these steps to, uh, you know, um, in this case, become more resilient, but just really become better organizations. 
Yeah. Well, and I think about that, um, particularly around how do we make decisions? Yeah. Um, because nobody talks about that. No, nobody talks about like, there's an assumption that we'll figure it out as we go. Yes. But if you have a conversation about it, then as you go, you have something to lean on. Absolutely. Um, especially in those moments where you're stuck and you're talking in circles with each other of like, yeah, well, I think this and I think this mm-hmm. and there's no there's no um, sort of process to latch those two things onto to figure out, like, yes. how do we how do we figure out these two ideas that are both valid um, but m- and maybe in opposition to each other, but they overlap like there's it's just complicated. Right. Um, and if we don't talk about how we make decisions, we, we don't know how to get through those moments. Right. And what's. You know, and it's, it's this idea of like, what are your values? What are mm-hmm. your guiding principles, right? What's important to you, right? What is the strategy? Yeah. Um, what is your strategy, right? And so that's how you make decisions alongside thinking about who's in the room, whose voices you're hearing, whose voices you're not hearing, and why is that, right? Like all of that's at play there. So mm-hmm. I do appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah. One, so speaking of strategy, one of the things that, um, I mean, I, I was absorbing and learning so much as I read through all these examples of how you could implement these dimensions of resilient organizations. For sure. One of the pieces from ideal, uh, ideology that stuck out to me was, um, quote, organizations should be trained and retrained in their own ideological location and destination. Mm. Staff should be fluent in the ideological underpinnings of the organization. Yes. Because if you're all well-trained and well-versed and understanding of where you're going, um, what your purpose is, yeah. um, what your benchmarks are along the way. Yeah, yeah. Then you're all able to operate together more effectively. Yes. And also potentially, you know, trust one another mm-hmm. and then also bring people, you know, call people in back to that core, like destination, yes. back to that core vision. Um, and I think that's so, um, important. Yes. Um, for people to think about and talk about as well. I think the other thing that that makes me think about is this idea of, right, you talk about everyone has to be on the same page about that. So we have to think about how we're doing that when we bring people on board. We also have to think about how we're doing that along the way, right? This retraining, these these continuous conversations along the way. Um, But you can't just do it on board. When people come on board and then just hope they absorb it, right, and they remember it, right? Because times get tough, right? And Uh people get busy and people get consumed by their outside lives too right and so i i just wanted to name that as it's important to do it when folks come on board but also continuously talking about it and reminding folks about it as well Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so good um all right well let's shift here and talk about application okay um how does this fit into how does this apply to our day-to-day lives um my application here is thinking about how i can apply these dimensions of resilient organizations to the work i'm doing yeah both the formal work i do in education um where i work with some organizations um run by students, um, but also how am I infusing this into some of the organizing work I'm doing as well. Um, So the structural, ideological, strategic, and emotional aspects of organizations feel so important as a framework to to think about how it applies, um, especially when you pair the dimensions with the main question that each asks. Yes. So structural is what kind of vehicle are we? Ideological, where are we going? Strategic, how do we get there? And emotional, how do we behave on the journey? Mm. Uh, And these are such great questions to get those conversations started in ways that I think in the the work organizations that I'm a part of, 
those conversations don't necessarily happen. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an assumption and a reliance on tradition. Yes. But when you have a new team, um, you need to have those conversations again and have a core, right? Like to revisit that, that previous thought. Like it's not just about bringing people on board, but all along the way, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you have a new team, like you yeah. have to, like you have to coalesce around like, where is it that we're going? Um, and does my vision for that fit into the the organization as a whole or am I at odds? And what do I, how do I make sense of that too? <laughs> right? Like that's, those are all things to think about and process and work through that then also sharpen your ability to make those decisions yes. uh, as well. So, wow. Yeah. I'm over here laughing only because you talk about being a, you know, new teams and I am a part of a new team at work. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is, I'm triggered in a way, but triggered in a good way. Right. Because I feel like I am maybe not in the simple, but brilliant ways that he's asking, right. And using this, would you call this a metaphor? What, I don't know what the term is here. Right. Mm -hmm. The vehicle metaphor, right. Like what kind of vehicle are you using? Where are you going? How do you get there? How do you behave while you're in the vehicle on the journey? Right. But it's this idea that I'm in this new space doing different work with different students. And there are, lots of policies around how we work with these students. There are a lot of expectations of these students, right? I just met all of my students for the first time and it was my first time to introduce myself to them and to remind them of some of the expectations of being a part of this program that they're a part of. Um, But I had to ask a lot of questions of the people around me first about what is this vehicle that we're in, right? How how have you all traveled so far? What's not working? Oh, the the wheel has broken off in some places, right? So, um, but trying to make sure that my vision and what I'm understanding about this program, this thing that we're doing, um, that uh, I'm taking care. I'm the mechanic here, right? And I'm and in many ways, I'm both the mechanic and the the driver, <laughs> right? So I've got to figure out how I do that, but also that everyone in the car with me, the vehicle with me is taken care of, knows their part of the process, is supporting me, I'm supporting them. There's there's a lot to it. So I, I was just chuckling because I've, I've been asking these questions in random ways um, in this new gig that I'm in. So mm-hmm. I appreciate that application. Yeah. Uh, I think mine is similar in the sense that, you know, you talk about this and you talked about this earlier too, right? Like this has so much applicability to anyone, right? In any kind of work that you're engaged in. And so, you know, not everyone is involved in or actively engaged in organizing uh, or organizing adjacent work, right? But the the principles, the concepts, the values behind what Maurice is talking about, um, I think are pretty applicable to anyone who finds themselves in a working environment, Right. Or anyone who is accountable and is in an accountable relationship to other people. Right. So I think that's another reason why I was just so jazzed about this piece and and getting to share this with folks who are listening to us, because I think, you know, it makes me want to consider the ways that um, I'm doing this work in all the spaces I find myself. And I Mm -hmm. think everyone can do that, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's I mean, you know, it's written for movement organizations um and there are so many ways that it's applicable outside of that um all right well let's talk about homework all right Uh, how do we continue to plan how do we continue to learn about this uh beyond a conversation here today um so there's this principle for uh, for a framework for principled struggle um, that's referenced here, and it exists in a larger article uh, by Adrian Marie Brown from a few years back called "A Call to Attention Liberation: 
to build abundant justice, let's focus on what matters. So that's one piece of homework is to read that article. Yes. Um, And I also want to reread this again and sit with it a little longer. Uh, And there's a few places where uh, Maurice Mitchell talks about this piece. Um, He's on Alicia Garza's Alicia Garza's podcast um, talking about this article as well. Um, and there's a few more episodes floating or a few more things floating around of different episodes and stuff. So I'm going to add that to the list as well and try to um, add that to my listening queue uh, as I as I make it through all the other things I've listened to. I like it. I'll yeah. make sure you're adding them to our list, to our collective mm-hmm. list. I mean, you know, you name some some wonderful people there. So um, I love that. Um, my homework for this week is to check out the discussion guide that mm-hmm. is connected to this piece. So um, I was able to read this um, article, this resource a few times, um, but it wasn't until sort of my last <laughs> pass at it that I scrolled far enough down to see the mention of the discussion guide. Um, and I certainly just did not have time to check that out. So I want to, I, Uh, I'm going to co-sign your homework. I want to read this again, sit with it, take it to work, take it to the spaces I'm at. But I also want to open that discussion guide. I think there um, there's lots of questions in it based on the content in each of the sections of this piece that we talked about today. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, it has the capacity to really help any of us who want to use this piece in a productive way. So I definitely want to check it out. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I saw that too at the end. I was like, ooh, Ooh. that's going to be, that's going to be a fun uh, additional resource to tag along to this um, really great piece. Absolutely. All right. Well, Damien, you're up next time. Uh, What do you bring to the table in our next episode? I am. All right. So for next week, I'm going to bring an article and an interview really um, to the table for us Um, and I'm going to give you full credit for finding this magazine thank you you're welcome Mm -hmm. Uh, I knew you were going to say thank you Uh, (laughs) this interview is featured in a brand new online magazine that just launched like the other day um, called Hammer and Hope Uh, and it's a magazine project focused on black politics and culture and the collective movement toward freedom um, it was founded by Jen Parker and Kianga Yamada Taylor. So uh, obviously we know this is going to be incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, so the interview that I'm bringing to the table is called After the Uprising, What is to be Done? Um, and it was a discussion by Derricka Purnell, Olufemi Taiwo, and Kianga Yamada Taylor, You know, all of whom we have tremendous respect for. We featured their work on this podcast before, so I have zero doubt that this is going to be an incredible conversation that Mm -hmm. these humans have. Um, This interview, their discussion is all about the legacy of the protest and the uprising that took place back in 2020, the growing threats from the right to our collective freedom, and we've been talking about that here recently. Yeah. and sort of where we go from here in terms of building movements to get us to where we need to go and and where we need to be. So I cannot wait <laughs> to read this conversation and, and talk about it here next week. Yeah, I skimmed through it a little bit. Um, oh, you got ahead, huh? Uh, yeah, uh, it looks it looks great. Yeah, um, I'm excited about it. And also the the magazine itself um, is so so great. There's so many great things in there. Yes, um, too, and the, it's really. Um, one of the things that Maurice Mitchell talks about in this piece is that um, our organizations should be um, find places for joy and and yes. art and um, different kinds of um, ways to express yourself. Yeah. Um, whether it's art or song or poetry or, or what have you, uh, and this 
online magazine Hammer and Hope, I think really embodies that in some ways. Yes. The, it, the magazine opens up with poetry. Um, and there's they want poets to be featured throughout. There's artwork in the mat. So there's all this great ways that they are thinking about this holistically. Um, and um, yeah, I think we'll, we'll also maybe next week talk about the reason they call themselves Hammer and Hope. I lo- which too, absolutely which is, love to do that. Um, which is really great. Yes. Um, I read that earlier and uh, now can't recall it because I didn't. That's okay. Prepare to talk about it. So but again, let's call it's Hammer and Hope. If you want to check it out in advance, you want to read this with us, um, we definitely want to amplify this new magazine because mm-hmm. I think it's going to be great. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So with that, we want to thank you for joining us today and for listening to Interdependent Study. You know what I'm going to ask you to do, but in case you forgot, please follow, leave a rating and review, share a podcast with the people in your life. Follow us on social media. Sign up for our email list to get notified about any new things we've got going on behind the scenes. I wonder if Ron is listening to us. I doubt it. He dropped off in the middle of last week's episode. Ah, you're probably right. Uh, Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. We'll talk to you next week.